read verses 13 through 20. I want to focus this morning on verses 13 through 19. So this is the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verses 13 through 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your Amen. Would you please be seated? Uh, well, I asked and was not given permission to use a Lord of the Rings quote in this morning's sermon, but I'm, I'm going to do that anyway. Uh, there's a moment in the movie version of, of Lord of the Rings that's not in the books where they are preparing for a great battle. It's the last battle. And the heroes are going to the enemy's land. They're going to take the battle to his land. And his land is filled with soldiers. They are vastly outnumbered. And so there's a debate. Should we go? Shouldn't we go? What should we do? And one of the characters in the movie says, certainty of death, small chance of victory. What are we waiting for? Let's go now. Well, Gimli, he expressed uh, an irrational optimism about the battle, didn't he? The circumstance was not good. Is there a place for you and me as God's people to be optimistic about the future? Is there a place? Is it rational for God's people to be pessimistic about the future? To be glum about what's going to take place? Is Is victory, are we on the threshold of victory or on the threshold of defeat? These are things that we think about every single day. And in some places, they think about these things more frequently than you and I do. I encourage you to subscribe to the newsletter from Voice of the Martyrs and pray for the people who are in persecuted, closed countries. They think about these things every day. Um, We might put it this way. are the plans that we make for gospel ministry in our community and in the world, are those plans destined for defeat? Are we like a surfer on a surfboard, 
paddling out to a gigantic tidal wave that will eventually overwhelm us and dash us against the rocks. Is that what evangelism is like? This morning, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus gives you a reason for a very bright optimism. He doesn't promise ease. He doesn't promise you that there's, it's not going to feel like a tidal wave is dashing you against the rocks at times. But he does promise victory. He does promise victory. This passage that we're looking at this morning, if, if you've been in the church for long, if you've listened to sermons for long, you know that this is, this is a big one. This is a big passage. This is, this is Peter's confession of Christ. It's, it's almost the middle part of Matthew's Gospel. This is the moment where immediately after this, Peter's confession, Jesus is going to begin to tell the disciples He's going to Jerusalem now to die. We are about to turn and we're going to go to Easter weekend from here. This is the moment that Jesus set his face like flint toward the cross and his own crucifixion. This is a big passage of scripture. And, and you, as you look at it, you might say, well, I'm going to make three or four sermons out of this, but this is a Presbyterian church, so we're just going to make a two-hour single sermon. I'm kidding. It won't be that long. Hour and a half tops. But I hope that you will, as you think about this, now begin to see why, why it is that Matthew, leading up to this point, has drawn your attention to the disciples' ignorance. Why is it that he's pointed out to us, written down for you to see, well, Jesus chastising the disciples in the boat when they were so afraid, Master, are you going to let us die? When Peter comes along and he says, will you... Will you please explain the parable to us? And he does that not once. He does it again. He does it a second time. Can you tell, tell us what, what do you mean? And Jesus says, do you still not understand? And just before this, he's warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're saying, we, we bring bread. And Jesus says, oh, you little face. You see, we, we come upon um, the reason for that emphasis in this passage. Why do we need to see how ignorant, how foolish these 12 men were? Why do we need to see that so clearly? Well, we learn why this morning. At last, they understand. At last. Well, Jesus will show us in this passage as well that um, this revelation that um, we learn why some men understand and receive the gospel while others don't. And this revelation is consistent with a, there's a prophetic anticipation of Jesus' ministry and the advent of a new covenant. And that anticipation is that there will be a spiritual power accompanied with this new gospel so that men will, will believe and, and there will come a time when, when they will all know the Lord. Jeremiah 31, this is repeated in Hebrews. They will all know the Lord and no, no one will need to teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord. This is the anticipation of the prophets that comes, begins to come to bear fruit in the time of the new covenant. But Jesus' ministry as well has revealed that 
there are dead branches in the Israelite tree. There are dead branches in the Israelite tree. And so he has come with an axe, John the Baptist said, to chop them off and to graft in new branches from the Gentiles, which we've already seen, the Sidonian woman who comes and she's professing faith. She, she comes to Christ and, and she's one of the first people that we see who understands his parable. Saying, yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps. She answers him in a parable. Jesus didn't come to start a new organization. He came that God's people might be invested with new, victorious power. The new covenant wasn't about scrapping all that God did before. The new covenant is about renovation. A reinvigoration, if you will. And that's what Jesus begins to explain to us in this passage. Notice, first of all, beginning in verse 18, that Jesus will build his church. Jesus is the church's architect. Jesus is the church's architect and builder. We begin here in verse 18 just noticing how Jesus emphasizes the fact that he will be the church's builder. He doesn't invest anyone else with this responsibility. He does it himself. He emphasizes his work. And notice then what we find is that he's not starting a new organization. Some would imagine that what Jesus is doing here is this is the start of a totally new movement. But notice with me in verse 18 exactly what Jesus says. And I tell you, you yourself are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is a builder. As we think about this, one of the things you ought to note is that this is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. It's the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. And so some will springboard off of this statement by Christ and they will say, okay, now he's moving on from Israel. They have rejected him and we've noticed the rejection of many. And so he's moving on from here and he's going to start a totally new organization called the church. But there's a curious thing that takes place here. Notice that Jesus didn't pause to explain to these Jewish men what a church is or how it functioned. Not one of them said, okay, hang on a second there. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? A church? We're not familiar with this term. Could you... Could you explain? That might be important for us to understand exactly what kind of an organization you are building. But there's none of that. There's no discussion whatsoever. Matthew simply assumes that they knew and you will know as well. And so it's important to note as Jesus linking back to the Old Testament prophets, it's important to note what's going on here. Actually, the term church came into existence as it were into religious language several hundred years before. You see, between the time of Israel's exile and when God began to bring them back, some men were gathered together, some Jewish men, and they were asked to translate the Hebrew Scriptures 
into Greek. They were asked to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into the Greek language. And and this began to, to be used by the church going forward. But they were asked to translate it. And so what they did is every place in the Old Testament that they came across the Hebrew term kahal, which means assembly, they would put in the Greek term, what do you think it would have been? Church. So let me give you just a couple of examples from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. So if you go to the Greek version of that, it would say on the day of the church. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter into the church of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the church of the Lord. So you see, what Jesus is is teaching his disciples is, he's he's not introducing a new term, he's not starting a new organization. He's telling them, I will build the assembly of the Lord. I'm going to be the builder. As the incarnate Son of God, I will build my church. And how is he going to do that? On the foundation that Peter has expressed already. Notice Peter's confession. Jesus has asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Or He says, who do people say that the Son of God is? And they say, well, some say that he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah or a prophet. Did any of them get it right? No. Everybody's getting it wrong. And then so Jesus' attention turns to the disciples themselves and he says, who do you yourselves say that I am? He puts them on the spot. Now, coming up to this, what's our expectation? Are they going to get it right? Well, they haven't gotten anything right yet. (laughs) They can't understand his parables. But Peter steps forward. Peter, the bold one, the one who asked the question, the one to whom Jesus has said, you little faith. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is an astounding moment. How, How in the world... Does he not understand all of these other things, all of the things that Jesus has taught so far? And here he steps forward, and nobody gets it right but him. Because this is the work of the Lord, that by his Spirit, He will build his church. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Why does he use that term? He's emphasizing the the name that his father had given him. And you are a Bar, son of Jonah. Jonah was his dad. Why does he say that? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this answer to Peter. This is not something that Peter got to by the power of his own intuition. 
Jesus is saying, you are blessed of God, Peter. Understand that. And all of you who are watching, why does Peter make the faithful confession? Because he is an illustration of how Christ builds his church. Through his spirit, he imparts knowledge and understanding to his people. Why is Peter's confession remarkable? Well, one, it's in light of so many wrong conclusions. And because it is in light of such noteworthy ignorance. How often has Peter's inability to understand been marked out for us? Christ builds his church by the work of his spirit. And this is illustrated in Peter's confession. In in high school, my dad contracted a, a... one of his co-workers at the paper mill to come and help design an addition to our home. And for the most part, it it was great. Now, the the guy who was the contractor, he was not a full-time contractor or architect, so as the years went by, we began to discover that there were problems. There were places where the roof leaked because the drainage wasn't designed properly. But we did this work And there were errors that in the end it began to fail in certain places. But Christ did not outsource the building of his church to some guy who does it on the side. If you take something away from this passage, take away the phrase, I will build my church. The building of the church is in the hands of the man who purchased it with his own blood. And he comes as a wise master builder to construct it. Now he does use men, but he has not abandoned his church that he purchased to the wisdom of fallen men. Our confidence, therefore, our confidence in the future of God's assembly is that Christ is building it. Secondly, Notice that Jesus will conquer hell. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus teaches us here that there's going to be someone to oppose the building project. Think about back uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah, they returned to the land and they started rebuilding the wall. And some of the locals got word of it and they sent uh, to Cyrus and they said, tell these people to stop building. And they, they had to stop the building project. In the same way, there will be men who oppose the building of Christ's church. Notably, Jesus says, the enemy is Hades. Translated, in our text, in the English Standard Version, as hell, the gates of hell. Literally, it is the word Hades. This is the place. What is Hades? Well, Hades is the place where departed, damned souls go to await judgment. Now, we know that the believer who dies in the Lord, his soul departs, and he's present with the Lord. That, that's the promise for every believer. You, you are in union with Christ and your soul at the moment of your death is perfected in righteousness and you go into the presence of Christ. 
Not so for the man who rejects Christ. That man, his soul, goes into a place of bondage called Hades. In Luke chapter 16, verse 23, this is the place from which the rich man, you remember, looked and he could see Abraham, I'm sorry, uh, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. They were, they were separated. And the rich man went to Hades and Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom. Or in Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 2, verse 27, this is the place to which God did not abandon the soul of Christ. And in Revelation chapter 20 in verses 13 and 14, it is Hades that will give up its dead unto final judgment. This is what will take place then. In the Old Testament, sometimes the word Hades is interchangeable with Sheol. You've seen that term before. Um, in Job chapter 38, he says, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen them? Have you seen the bars or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? In Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. They're not close to him. How much more the hearts of the children of man. So then Hades represents the owner, as it will, of fallen, damned souls. It is a prison that is closed and that keeps men in its captivities. It is the place from which Christ redeems us. But it doesn't relinquish its souls willingly. Jesus says that it has gates. This is important to think through. Where do you find gates? Well, Jesus has instructed you. He said, enter by the narrow gate, hasn't he? So in other words, these cities uh, that the apostles would have been used to and went on for many years were surrounded by walls. Those were walls for protection. And they had gates in them to regulate the flow of people. You could come in by the gate. You could go out by the gate. And that's why we find that people like Lazarus would have been located by a gate. They would beg for alms at the gate because that's where people came in and that's where people went out. So the gates are a regulatory function. They, this is the place where men would sit and they would act as judges. The people could come during the day and they would ask a man at the gate to give him a judgment in their case. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that the gates are not a weapon. They are not a weapon. They're not a piece of warfare. And so Jesus here, when he's saying the gates of hell will not prevail, he's not speaking of some activity of hell against the church. What he is saying is that my church will go against the gates of hell and they won't stand. And every man that I want to claim out of, out of imprisonment in Hades, I will take. Every single one that I want, I will rescue out of it. In fact, turn over with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> John here is, is writing and he has a personal revelation of Christ, much like Paul. 
on the Damascus Road, beginning in verse 17. This is Revelation 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. This is Christ, the resurrected Christ. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, when Christ rose from the dead, he came back with the keys of his opponent's gate. This is a symbol of his utter victory over death and hell. And as we learn here, going back to Matthew chapter 16, what Jesus is teaching us is that the church will experience gospel victory. The gates of Hades will not prevail. It's as though those scenes in a a medieval war movie and the armies are bringing their battering ram and they hit the doors and they hit the doors and they hit the doors and ultimately the doors break open or they fall off their bars or like Samson in his day with his strength. Remember, he lifted the gates up and carried them away from the city, exposing it and all of its residents to danger. And immediately we think of Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 to 29. He is Samson. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he does what? Binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying is, is I have come and I'm demonstrating to you by my victories over sickness and disease. I'm casting out demons. I've resisted the devil. What I am showing you is that he has zero power before me and I do as I will. And the victory that I am accomplishing, I'm accomplishing for all of my people. And when you are in union with me by the Holy Spirit, guess what? You have power over hell as well. Its grip is lost. You're no longer a prisoner. And you go out then to proclaim victory to all of Christ's And the gates of hell will not prevail. This is illustrated in Peter's confession. Here, is a soul that Christ has rescued. Here is a man that Jesus has snatched from beyond the gates of Hades and brought to himself. The gospel of Christ is a message about God's dramatic rescue from death. Think about this. As we go back to the Old Testament then, Where can we find a picture of a people who are held in bondage? Where can we find a picture of a people who are overseen by heavy-handed taskmasters who are told to bake bricks and, oh, by the way, go get your own straw, who are killed, who are told to slaughter their children, Where can we find a picture in the Old Testament of God coming 
with great power against the leader of that taskmaster and saying, let my people go. We find this in the Exodus. The Exodus is a picture of how Christ has rescued you from the grip of Hades. And I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19 now and see this verse. Let's begin reading on, in verse 3, Exodus 19, verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, this is Mount Sinai, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. This is the gospel. God, by his mighty hand, reaches through the gates of Hades where you were held captive, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, brings you to himself on eagles' wings. He gives you the strength. He does all the work because this is a work of grace. And He brings you to Himself. And as you, as you exit those gates, you see Christ and you fall on your, feet, your knees and you say of Him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the work of redemption. Christ will build His church. Christ will conquer hell. And then thirdly, Christ will purify His people. Notice with me going back to Matthew 16 now, verse 19. I will give you all, this is a plural, he's not speaking just to Peter. I will give you all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here, Christ is speaking especially of His providential care for His people. The ones that He has brought out of Hades, the ones who are freed from bondage to sin and death, He exercises a providential care over them by giving certain keys to the apostles. What are these Keys. Well, we've already seen a reference to Christ having the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says that in Revelation 1.18, and we see it mentioned again in Revelation 3.7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So there's this key of David that they open and and no one closes, and they shut, and no one opens. This seems to have some parallel to what Christ is saying, isn't it? What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. There's a correspondence then. But not between Hades and this key, but heaven and these keys that are delivered to the apostles. 
And I would draw your attention back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. There's a great promise that's made here that we talk about usually every December. You remember it. For unto us a son is born. Unto us, uh, 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 for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And Isaiah goes on in the Revelation there, he says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of of Peace. Of the increase of his government now, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to build it, to uphold it, to preserve it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what what we're told through Isaiah's prophecy is that this son who's coming, the government will be upon his shoulder and he will rule on the throne of, of David and the increase of his government will cease with the rapture. No, the increase of his government will know no end. It will never stop. This corresponds to Isaiah 2, when we see that the mountain of the Lord will grow and grow and grow until it becomes what? The largest of the mountains. Or as Jesus has said in his great uh, parable of the kingdom, he said that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast when it is sown into the lump. It leavens the entire thing, the whole lump, the whole world. And Jesus has given the keys of this kingdom, the government, into the hands of these men. Wait a second. The man who said, I don't know what that parable means. That man? Yes. That man. But Jesus has already shown you his power that he can take that man that Peter, and by the sanctifying power of His Holy Spirit, make him a man of God who discerns the things of God. What is the key then? Well, Jesus tells you, whatever you all loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind will have been bound in heaven. This Loosing has the idea of of binding, literally binding the arms. You think of a prisoner. John the Baptist was bound. His hands were bound by Pilate when he was taken into prison. Jesus, his, his hands were bound when the high priest took him and they delivered him over to heaven. But you can also loose those bonds. What Jesus is saying is that through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit rescues men. He releases them from their bondage. He releases them from Hades. He gives them life. They're no longer prisoners. They are free in Christ. He gives them freedom. And this is what men do. This is what the church does today. Coming against the gates of hell, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, men are delivered. They are loose. How do the elders today exercise these keys? Well, very simply, 
by admitting people into membership in the church, and by excommunicating them from the church. What Jesus is saying is that as long as these elders use the judgment of Jesus Christ in admitting men and proclaiming forgiveness to them, that is true. But when the church announces the discipline of the Lord, it is likewise honored in heaven. And truthfully, it is, interp- it is translated this way. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound. So long as you use the judgment of Jesus Christ, don't rely on your own opinions and intuition, you have the assurance that when men admit you to the church, you are received by Christ as well. And when you are excommunicated from the church by the judgment of Christ, you are not a citizen of heaven either. This is powerfully illustrated in Peter's sermon. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. We see a powerful picture of Christ building His church through Peter who uses the keys of the kingdom by preaching the gospel, opens heaven, and many come in. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here, Peter, through the preaching of the gospel, opens heaven and 3,000 souls come in. Snatched, as it were, by the power of Christ from Hades. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will conquer hell. And Jesus will purify his people. Um, In South Asia, there's been a rise of anti-conversion laws. So it's not just don't preach the gospel. But if you convert to Christ, you face, at, at minimum, imprisonment. But... There are still men and women who go there as missionaries for Christ to proclaim the gospel. And I was listening recently to one couple who had gone into South Asia, and they said that the church is not scared of coming persecution. And so the missionaries have asked some of the local pastors, they say, well, what if they put you in jail? What are you going to do? What if the gates of Hades rise up against you to prevent you preaching the gospel? And you're put in jail. What are you going to do? And they say, well, we'll preach the gospel in jail. We'll start a church there. And they tell the story about how in a particular village there, it was filled with idolatry. In fact, you could, there were literal idols on the roofs of most of the houses. 
And 80% of the people in this particular village were considered witch doctors. And so they began to pray for the city, but they were not permitted entrance. They were not wanted there. And then there was a fire in the village. And it's at that moment that they reached out to the Christians and they said, can you come help us? And so the missionaries went to the village and they brought rice and blankets. And they ministered to the people. And in the ashes of the fire, two of the men got down and they prayed and they said, Lord, build your church here. So they went away. A few years later, they were preaching in a, in a service, and two of the men from that village came and sat on the back row, and they were a little concerned. They said afterwards they were actually friendly to us, and they wanted us to come back to the village and talk to them about Christ. And we went back, and we started a church. you know where they began that church? They began the church in the very home where they knelt and prayed, Lord, build your church. I want to ask you to make three things, as you meditate on this passage, three things, points of personal prayer. Will you pray for these things? Will you ask Christ to build his church in our community, in Macomb, in Summit, Magnolia, Meadville? Will you ask Christ to build his church in our community, wherever your, the door to your home sits? Will you ask Christ to build his church there? Two. Will you ask Christ to keep our elders, me included, faithful as we use Christ's judgment, not our own, to admit members and implement discipline? Ask him to do that. Keep us faithful. And then ask Christ, thirdly, to show you how you can be more involved in ministering the gospel at New Covenant and in our community. I don't think we can pray and ask the Lord to build His church and not also think, and by the way, how do you want me to be involved with that? How can I be the hands and feet of Christ? How can I be a fellow worker, as Paul would say of himself, in, in my town? How can I be a fellow worker for the gospel? Three things. Christ, build your church Keep our elders faithful and use me. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we know that the work of the gospel is a gracious work. You don't need us for it. You, you didn't, in the same way that you didn't ultimately need Moses to go before Pharaoh, you brought your people out by your own powerful, gracious work. You, you brought them out. They were afraid, they came out trembling. Moses himself trembled before you and you brought them on eagle's wings to yourself. And we thank you that that same power and even more is operating in our day. Lord, we confess to you that we are often tempted to despair. And we think, oh, oh, the battle is lost. And yet we look to your word and we read things like, and the increase of his government will see no end. That the mountain of the Lord will be the largest of the mountains in the earth. That the kingdom of Christ will begin like a mustard seed and it will grow up into be the largest of all the trees in the garden. 
But most importantly, that the power of Christ Jesus is behind the building of the church. Lord, we pray magnify yourself in our midst. Build your church in our community. Build your church here in Macomb, in Summit. Drive back the the forces of evil and bring hope to this people. Keep us faithful, Lord. Keep our elders faithful. Help us always to look to your word and understand it by the work of your Holy Spirit. And use us, Lord. Stir every heart in this room to be useful here in this church and in our community for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.